Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. So on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I'm joined by Mike Drews. You know and have seen Mike Drews in the past if you've consumed any of our Global Medical Device Podcast episodes. But Mike's with Vascular Sciences, and you know he's got a ton of expertise when it comes to, to all things regulatory. Today, our conversation was a little bit of, of a twist, so to speak. Mike was more in the uh, questioner position and I was more on the hot seat. Uh, and we spoke a lot more about quality. And, you know, I, I guess to, to put a, a description on the topic of quality, we talked about some of really the shortcomings or obstacles or challenges when it comes to quality and uh, hopefully give you a few tips and pointers on things that you can do to improve upon your company's quality philosophy, as well as try to help uh, implement and ensure that true quality becomes part of your company's culture. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Joining me today is familiar voice and face on the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome back. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to, to speak with you and your audience. Absolutely. And so a few weeks ago, I guess, you and I had the chance to to chat, and the topic that we explored then, let me remind myself of the exact title, was about a really about a, a regulatory gap analysis of FDA's systems and policies. And folks will include a, a link to that for you to check that out. But while doing so, or right after we did so, we talked about maybe there's also a, a similar type of conversation that we can have more from the quality side of things. And I thought maybe we could dive into that a little bit today and you know, maybe uh, do a little bit of role reversal, if you will. I know we've done that a time or two in the past. So what are your thoughts? I think that's a great idea, John. And I would be happy to. And incidentally, on a personal note, I just listened to that podcast that you referred to during my yeah. morning walk the other day. And I think it was a good one. Yeah. So I would encourage our audience to listen to it. Not like I'm not trying to imply that, you know, all of our conversations are not equally good, but that was a good one. And you're exactly right. That was sort of the, the motivation, the impetus for doing something similar on the quality side, John. And because you're, without a doubt, you know, the quality guru, we thought we would do a little role reversal and I'll ask you some questions and then John and I will sure. discuss them together. So sure. uh, I think that's the plan for today. Let's do it. So, John, just starting out from sort of the basics, you know, from the ground level, everybody uses the word quality, but what exactly does quality mean? What would be a, your definition of quality? And is it an oversimplification of quality to simply say how good or bad something is? So what, what yeah. is quality in your book, in your book, John? It, it is one of those, I'll say ambiguous, esoteric words, to be honest, and it gets thrown around a ton in our, in our industry. And, you know, the, the how good or bad something is actually cheated a little bit and went to Miriam Webster. I went to the online version, not the not the hard copy version, but to look up the word quality. And that was actually one of the definitions as actually the first definition in Miriam Webster is how good or bad something is. While it seems that maybe it is a an oversimplification, at the same time I, I think there's a couple of things there. I think it is important to use a simple definition for these types of things. But the problem I have with that that simple uh, explanation is 
there's subjectivity involved to that, right? So what you think is good or bad might be completely different to what I think is good or bad. I think it was Deming. Forgive me, I might, I might have my quality guru misapplied here, but I think it was Deming that said something along the lines of, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. And I'm definitely paraphrasing. So I think for quality to be meaningful, I think it's something we have to define in le- as least subjective terms as we possibly can. Uh, I think we need to make it as objective as we can, but I, but I think we need to measure it to determine whether or not we are actually meeting our definition of quality, whatever that might be. Well, I think that's a great response, John. Let me take it a, a, a tiny bit further. I think it's interesting that you point out, and apparently Webster also points out, that quality you know, sort of implies good or bad. But at least in my view, John, feel free to agree or disagree with me. In the regulatory, in the FDA world, that's in fact not at all what quality means. Right. Quality is not about good or bad. Quality to, uh, in the regulatory sense is about consistency. Are you making your product consistent? You could be making your product consistently good or you can make your product consistently bad, but the, but the quality itself is not about the goodness or the badness. And the metaphor that I often like to use, John, is McDonald's. You know, McDonald's is one of the most successful uh, restaurants in the world. Is it because they make a good hamburger? Probably not so much. They make a very consistent hamburger. You know, you can go to a McDonald's literally anywhere in the world. And if you order a hamburger, you know exactly what you're going to get. You might like it. You might not like it, but you know exactly what you're going to get. So in the regulatory world, John, I would argue that quality is more about consistency as opposed to good or bad. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that's an oversimplification as well? I think there's some accuracy to that. But as you described the McDonald's scenario, I, I totally agree. I mean, McDonald's could, could look at their process for producing and reproducing a hamburger consistently over and over again, at location after location after location. That may be how they measure quality, right? But I look at that as it's kind of their process, right? Um, so that's a measure of their, their process quality. But also to your point, you know, five-year-olds aside, there are a few people who would say, aha, that that hamburger I get from McDonald's is high quality product, right? <laughs> so I think there's, I think both are measures of quality, but one might be more from a product lens, whereas another might be from more of a process lens. Or taking it just one step further, speaking of consistency, what if we manufacture a medical device that's consistent. In other words, all the devices coming off of our assembly line fit within the specs. Yeah. And yet all of those devices go on to kill people. Exactly. I mean, I mean, hopefully not. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah. I would argue, I would argue, John, that that's actually a regulatory failure and not, not a quality failure. Why? Because one of the ways that I differentiate between regulatory and quality is regulatory. Uh, their main job is to set the specs so that if we manufacture a device within the specs, it will be safe and effective, as opposed to on the quality side, the quality professional's job is to make sure that the devices coming off the line fall within the specs. Right. And, and I think this is where we get into, there's, there's a, at least in this example, there's definitely an overlap or a Venn diagram where both quality and regulatory play a part in quality, right? So, um, but to your, you know, the, the quality engineer primarily is responsible for making sure that that product can be uh, produced and reproduced consistently over and over and, and over again. But you're right, you know, the, from the product perspective, does it work or not? Does it perform as expected? That that may be a little bit 
outside the domain of the quality professional per se, and, and maybe more in the domain of regulatory, or I would even charge maybe even a, uh, a product developer or an engineer who's involved in that process too. But regulatory starts the whole game, essentially, you know, as far as what we're trying to solve, what issues we're trying to address. Exactly. So once again, I think you and I are singing the same song, just maybe in a slightly different key. I think that, as I said a moment ago, regulatory, or maybe even before that, you know, product development, our job is to design the device at the specs, so to speak, so that if the device falls within those specs, it will be safe and effective. On the other hand, quality's job is to make sure that the devices that are manufactured fall within those specs. So let's move on, John. Sometimes people refer to levels of quality or types of quality. What's, What's that all about? And what's the difference between product quality, and you just alluded to this a moment ago, versus process quality? Yeah, I mean, you go back to the the definition that we started off with, good, bad. I mean, that sounds like it's binary in some respects. You know, and, and I think there is, you try to make this as black and white as you can, where you define a specification and you have some means to measure whether that be a, a product attribute or some output from a, a process. You try to define good or bad criteria so that, so that you know, okay, this is a, if a device follows this step per this process as it's defined and it meets the the acceptance criteria or what we define as good, then okay, it keeps going. If it doesn't, then you know now we have to figure it out. We have to maybe do a little bit of an investigation. Maybe we have to c- categorize that as a, a non-conformance in some way, shape, or form. So I, I'm stumbling a little bit here, but I think generally speaking, we have to define what acceptance criteria, what acceptance levels. And sometimes, you know, like with specifications, for example, oftentimes there might be a low end and a high end or a tolerance. You know, maybe we're shooting for a particular nominal measurement or dimension or whatever the case may be, but we have some acceptance range. Well, you know, maybe it can be 10, but, you know, we'll accept eight and we'll accept 12. So 10 plus or minus two. So you try to define these things within, you know, your process capabilities but at the same time, there has to be a connection between uh, your process capabilities and what the device needs to do. So I think from this perspective, it's important to look at the product quality, um, you know, and we, as we talked briefly about, you know, defining that from a regulatory perspective. What is it that we're trying to solve? And hopefully there's a good relay of information to those engineers and product developers who are now going to define all the requirements and all of the specifics about that product and try to set all the, the tolerances and the dimensions and so on and so forth. And hopefully through their VMV activities, they're able to prove and demonstrate that, that a product that's made per these specifications, including the tolerances, will work, will perform, will be safe at, at the end of the day. And then that information gets translated or transferred and in, in, in to the, our quality engineering resources, people who are defining and, and designing the processes to manufacture that product. And so, you know, we should be saying, you know, hey, Mike, this is a really critical dimension and we need to make sure we're measuring that. And, you know, we want to catch those issues early on and so on and so forth. So, you know, it, it's really it's really about understanding your limits, your capabilities, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. And as much as you try to make this black and white, sometimes it is great. Sometimes it's super great. Sometimes it's great. I would argue, John, that it's <laughs> always great. <laughs> well, uh, 
And yeah, if it's I can, not I can, gray, I, then if, if somebody sees something as black and white, then maybe that's indicative of a whole different problem. But <laughs> uh, fair enough. I mean, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of people that say, "Well, you know, it's really hard for me to define quality. I know it when I see it." Okay. The Supreme Court justice—I can't remember the the specific one who yeah. pornography that way. You know, he he didn't know what it is, but he knows it when he sees. <laughs> and it's like, eh, okay, that's that's not helpful to anybody, especially if we're manufacturing medical devices. I mean, we well, apparently it was helpful to the U.S. Supreme Court, well, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> well, yeah, we, I'm not touching that one. So, um, um, but it, but I think you know, in in the spirit of knowing what our product is supposed to do, we we have to define quality of that product. You know, and it's not like, well, Mike, just go make that product, and yeah. at, when you're done. I'll know if it's good or not. I mean, that's yeah. that's not helpful. Well, I was just going to say back to uh, you know, as I, I listened to your response, it, re- it reminded me of a dinner time conversation that I had a few years ago, prior to COVID, with one of my very good friends who happens to be a senior VP of quality for a Fortune 50 medical device company. He and I were very good friends in in graduate school, and we got into sort of a philosophical discussion of what does quality mean and what's the difference between quality and regulatory. Basically, he said that quality means does the device fit the specs? And I said, okay, fair enough. But whose job is it to set the specs? And he said, oh, no, no, that's not my job. That's somebody else's job. Yeah. <laughs> so, speaking yeah. of, of of that, John, th- this brings us to, I think, you know, an, another of my favorite questions. Who's ultimately responsible <laughs> for quality? In other words, you know, you hear in a lot of organizations, they, and I think it's probably cliche to say this, that Everybody is responsible for quality, but is that realistic or is that, uh, you know, are people just smoking their socks? Who do you think is responsible for quality? Is it just the people that have quality in their title and their job description or is it everybody or is it somewhere in between? Well, this one's a, for me, a little bit tougher to explain, I think, but I'll, I'll do my best here. Yes, it is cliche to say that everyone owns quality. And at the same time, there is a lot of truth to that. But I think, you know, in in 2022 or, you know, certainly for the past five or 10 years or maybe held last 20 years or so, I think the quality department is oftentimes tasked with the quality of the product, the process, whatever the case may be, right, wrong or indifferent. I think quality, the quality discipline over, over the years not just in our industry, but just in general, it does seem like there's a lot of flavors of the month, if you will, like different methodologies. And, and I'm not maligning any of them, but you'll, you know, just rattling off a few things that have been popular and then they decline. Things like House of Cards and Six Sigma and TQM, Total Quality Management, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, they're all different spins or flavors, essentially, though, trying to do the same thing. But but I think where quality has become sort of a sometimes a dirty word in our industry or maybe a misunderstood term in our industry is because the quality professional is applying these different tools and methodologies and techniques and approach. And they're, they're basically trying to apply that across the board. Many of these things that I just mentioned, they're intended to be applied to manufacturing processes so that you can reproduce and re- repeat consistency time and time again, you know, or, you know, whether you're, you're making something at 8 a.m. in the morning or 8 p.m. at night or on the 2nd of February or the 2nd of August, you know, it's just being able to, to demonstrate that you have process capability that can yield the same 
the same. We'll, we'll use air quotes around that consistent quality product, right? Yeah, back and, to that word consistency that I used earlier. Yeah, it's a good word. And so I think because of that, you know, like if you were to ask a design engineer, do you own quality? They may roll their eyes and like, man, that's those guys over there, right? <laughs> but come on, design engineer, don't get too caught up in the minutia or the baggage maybe that that the quality discipline, so to speak, maybe has created either intentionally or unintentionally over the years appreciate what the word means, you know, is what you're doing good or bad? And again, I'm going back to that really, really simple descriptor. You as a design engineer should know whether or not what you're doing from the design of your product perspective is good or bad. You have culpability and responsibility for quality at some level. So yeah, it sounds cliche, but I think everyone in the organization should have that opportunity to influence or or be a part of quality and influence the decisions that are made. Or if they see something that doesn't seem like it is quality, be able to raise their hand and and say so without uh, reprimand, you know? Or looking at it a slightly different way, John, when I meet somebody for the first time and they introduce themselves and they say they work in quality assurance or quality control or whatever it is, I'm often tempted to respond to them by saying quality as opposed to what? Crap? Because, <laughs> well, yeah. well, you're laughing, John, but you'll appreciate my, my sense yeah. of humor here. Because if not just the quality and the regulatory people, but if the design people and everybody in the company, if they did their job, would we need quality people? Would we need regulatory people? Would we need the FDA? That's a topic of a, maybe a different conversation, <laughs> yeah. John. But when we ask the question, who is responsible for quality? Yeah, on one hand, it sounds a bit cliche. But on the other hand, it's an important question. Yeah. Dive in a little bit deeper. Now, me, let's just, for hypothetical sake, say I'm a design engineer. Maybe I'm really good at designing, or I think I'm really good at designing a product. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So my quality lens should be focused on, on my role and responsibility in that, you know, in the big picture of things. The quality engineer, and I'm using air quotes here, they should have more expertise in designing process, manufacturing-related processes. So their quality lens should be around that. To the regulatory person, their quality uh, contribution should be about making sure that the product that we identified the need for, that that the resulting product actually addresses that. You know, so there's different levels of quality or different lenses or perspectives of quality, just depending on what my roles and responsibilities are. Or going back to my you know very simple Donald's metaphor from earlier, John, whoever designed the first McDonald's hamburger probably knew that they were designing a crappy hamburger, a crappy product. But from a quality perspective, I think we would be hard pressed to find any medical device company that can manufacture a product with as, uh, the, the same level or greater consistency as McDonald's does their hamburgers. Yeah, so. I can't argue with that. <laughs> I can't argue with that. Okay, so are there negative connotations to quality? Is there a negative side to this coin? I mean, I had hinted at uh, a little bit of it. I mean, I think, you know, just in the time that I've I've been in the industry, so that's like 25 years or something like that now. I forget every year that happens adds another year, but it doesn't seem like it's been that long. But but I remember, you know, in those early days or all the time, actually, the head of quality, the, the quality department would say, hey, John, you need to check out this tool or you need to look at this tool or you need to use this tool. And you know, they, they become like, almost like disciples, you know, of these different methodologies and approaches. And, and they try to, you know, push to implement it. 
within the company, oftentimes unsuccessfully. So then every time they try that, the their colleagues start to roll their eyes a little bit because, you know, it's like, try something, it didn't work, try another thing, it didn't work, try another thing, it didn't work. And so I think they lose, you know, sometimes quality professionals within within companies lose a lot of a lot of clout, a lot of credibility because of some of those types of things. I'm not saying, you know, they're entirely responsible or culpable for all of it, but nonetheless, I think there has been this this um shift over time that that has caused some issues with respect to quality. I think the the other thing that oftentimes happens within companies, not all companies, but oftentimes the quality folks, the quality department again, oftentimes has that responsibility for implementing things like quality management systems and procedures and, and things of that nature that, you know, hopefully part of that is a compliance component that, you know, we're going to implement processes and procedures that meet FDA 20 or ISO 13485 or whatever the case may be. But the problem is a lot of times these folks, they don't engage or interact with those who actually are involved with the process. Like we'll use the manufacturing. Like I've known, I've seen it so many times where a quality engineer will write work instructions and manufacturing instructions and inspection procedures based on how they think that a product needs to be manufactured. But they don't talk to the people who are actually manufacturing it, right? And so maybe they they put this in place, they define it, and the manufacturing people are like, this is not how we do this at all, right? And sometimes the manufacturing people will speak up, say, hey, John, that that's this isn't how we do this thing over here. You know, let me show it to you. The good quality people are listening and said, oh, I didn't realize that. But unfortunately, a lot of the quality people say, yeah, well, this is the way we're doing it, right? They're not willing to, to, to adapt. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the story that one of my professors used to tell when I was an undergrad in engineering about a thousand years ago. That is, the guy that designed a particular engine in a car clearly never worked on a car before because in order to change the spark plug, <laughs> you had to pull the whole engine out of the car. <laughs> yeah. And it's worse today with, with cars. I mean, like you want to try try to do it yourself and change your own oil. I mean, you have to remove a quarter panel to do that. It's just not practical. <laughs> and so just kind of lumping together the last two questions that we just talked about, who's responsible for quality and are the negatives of connotations of quality. One of my other friends likes to say, if you're working in regulatory or quality and people like you, then you're not doing your job. So <laughs> why do you think some people think that, John? And do you think that's, that's the way that it should I've never heard that one. If, if So if I'm a regulatory quality person. If you're working in regulatory or in quality and people like you, you're not doing your job. I think he's referring to as what I often refer to as the regulatory police or the quality police yeah. telling people what they cannot do and so on. I mean, I, I see some of that. I mean, I'll, I'll um, continue the analogy with like a, a primary care physician or, you know, a, a general physician, like a family doctor. Like I, you know, like my um, one of my relatives a while back, they're like, oh, we, we went to the same doctor. They're like, oh, I really like that guy. I go, why do you like that that doctor? They go, he's so nice. I go, yeah. Did you like ask him about this or ask him? About, I'm like, I don't know that he's a great doctor. Just because he's a good guy doesn't necessarily make him a good doctor. You know, I, I want the, the guy the, or the gal uh, who, you know, is going to be tell it like it is and exactly. and not be afraid that that, uh, that they're going to hurt my feelings if it's a message that I need to hear. And so I think that that might be 
um, what you're uh, equating to, like the regulatory and quality person who uh, is sugarcoating everything, you know, just to, to try to make friends or keep peace or what, what have you, are they doing their job? And I, I think that's a fair question. I hadn't thought about it like that. But I think quality and regulatory needs to, to, to push the envelope a little bit. They need to make sure that the folks that are that they're working with, their colleagues, you know, the collaborators and so on, that they understand the importance of, you know, whatever that might be, the product quality, the process quality. And it's but within reason, I mean, not just like be so hellbent on it's my way or the highway. But stand firm. I mean, if there's something like, no, Mike, I this is has to be made this way because you know of these reasons, and you know, support it and corroborate it with evidence, whether it be per standards or regulation, whatever the case may be. But but support your decision. Don't just be you know, don't just be a contrarian. Don't just be so stuck in your ways that you have to control and be right about something. So I think there's a balance. Well, I, uh, John, I could not agree with you more in the sense that quality and regulatory should be pushing the envelope. And that's exactly what I try to do in my practice all the time. But I think the simple reality is that it's actually the opposite. Most yeah. people in quality and regulatory, not only do they not push the envelope, they actually work really hard to seal the envelope up and make <laughs> it much smaller than it, than it was to begin with. Yeah. But, that's, but anyway... Moving on, you know, digging in further into the into the manufacturing side. So oftentimes product quality, it seems to be something that's often added as an inspection step as yeah. the devices are coming in, uh, coming off the assembly line. The question is, should product quality be a step or should product quality be more integral part of the product design process? I'm guessing I can, I probably know your answer to this question, John, but I would love to hear it directly from yeah. the rest. So I'll, I'll answer with a, a short story. Very, very early on in my career, I worked for, for a device company and most of the products, let's just lump them into catheter-based technologies. And some of the quality criteria was super subjective. Like, you know, these were catheters that were going to go over a guide wire. Uh, and if, you know, for those listening, if you don't know this, that's cool. It doesn't matter. But but there's a taper on this on this catheter, which is essentially a plastic tube. I'm, again, oversimplifying. But you want to make sure that, and the guide wire is, is, is a much, much typically smaller outside diameter than the outside diameter of the catheter. But you want to make sure that that had a smooth, what they call a smooth transition. And that's how they define the acceptance criteria. Make sure it has a smooth transition. Yeah. What does smooth mean? What does smooth mean? And how, like you said earlier, if you can't measure it, yeah. So, so then you start to get into you know, okay, well, should I measure the angle of that taper and you know the slop between the inner diameter of the catheter and the outside diameter of the guide wire and so on and so forth? But it got to a point where I started to realize, wow, how I define this is really important now. But just if I define it within a process. It's air, especially if it's a human type process, like if, if it's a manual uh, step that I'm checking. I think I heard something once that a manual inspection is is pro 80% effective, you know, it's high error rate. And so the natural, the conventional wisdom in many of those cases is like, oh, well, I'll just add another inspection step that measures the same thing further down the process, right? Well, that's not fixing the issue. That's actually making it worse, right? Despite the, what what it seems to be, 
And so I think a lot of times companies or, or, or engineers or whomever has that responsibility, they're trying to put these inspection steps. And okay, there's a point or, or there's definitely a, a room for that in a manufacturing process, but it should be more of a, a verify rather than you know proving quality. Me as as design engineer, I, I should be factoring that in to the, the the design of the product. Me as quality engineer, I should be factoring that into my manufacturing process. I mean, that should be like where I start with, so that at the end of the the processes, whatever whether it be design or manufacturing, I have high confidence that I'm going to get quality result. Now I know that's kind of like motherhood and apple pie. It's a little <laughs> bit you know high level, but. But that should be where I'm leading with. I shouldn't be just thinking about, oh, I need to add a step here to check for quality or add a step there to check for quality. Now, that sounds maybe a little contrarian to what I've said earlier. You, you got to measure it to know how you're doing. So there is an, an element where you need to inspect things and measure things. But I should be incorporating that as part of my, my methodology, my design process. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of precedent for the idea that you're describing here, John. You know, from my perspective as a medical guy, a lot of what we do in medicine, I don't mean necessarily in medical devices, but I mean in the clinical medicine, the practice of medicine is actually manual. You know, when right. a, you go to a physician and they palpate or feel various parts of your body to see if there's some 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 like abnormality or a mass, like a breast exam or something like that. If they find something, then that is usually verified. They usually follow up with uh, some form of imaging or perhaps a, a biopsy or something like that. So I think even though you're describing medical device development and manufacturing, the similarities to the practice yeah. of medicine, I think, are, are spot on. Right. So back to process quality, do you think then that process quality as a result of all of this gets ignored? I think it, I don't think it gets ignored. I think it gets misapplied. I think there is a, generally speaking, there's an interest and an attempt to um, implement uh, effective process quality. I think th the intention is there. I just think it's missing the mark in some way, shape, or form, and I can't entirely put my finger on it. I think there, it's not the fault. Uh, and I'm not trying to play a blame game here, but it's not the fault of the quality department or that quality engineer. It's not the fault of the design engineer. It's not the fault of the regulatory professional. They all own some of it though, right? And, and I think, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of going back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier. It's, it's a perspective thing. I mean, me as, you know, depending on what my role and responsibility or what part I play in, in this, this medical device company and in, in our quest to bring new products to market, I might not appreciate or speak the language of regulatory or quality or, or whatever the case may be. So communication, I mean, I, I know this also sounds cliche, but effective communication uh, is probably where the issue is. I'm not effectively communicating as a design engineer to the quality engineer. Maybe I misinterpreted information that was transferred to me from, from regulatory. And, and so it's like, you know, we need, to do a much better job of, of being transparent and open and, and trying, you know, to communicate, communicate, communicate to, to ensure that these things are, are more effective. But that's a real challenge. And, and I, like I said, I think the intent's there. I just think the implementation falls down. Well, I would agree, John. And actually adding on a little bit to what you just said, the vast majority of the medical device industry, and I suspect the vast majority of our audience, 
works in the class one and class two medical device world. And in the class one and class two world, there are ostensibly no requirements, certainly no requirements in a regulatory submission to say anything about your manufacturing process or anything else. As a matter of fact, usually it's unusual for uh, in a 510k or de novo, for example, to include anything about manufacturing. However, in the class three universe, in the PMA and the HDE world, we're closer to the drug world in the sense that there are actually manufacturing requirements that have to go into your PMA to get your PMA approval. So maybe, I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily a good idea, but maybe we should take a page from the class three universe or possibly even from the drug universe and think about those process quality issues, you know, earlier as maybe even as part of the regulatory process. I agree with you. You know, when I first started to understand like design controls, for example, I only applied design controls to the design of the product. And the regulations are they're not explicit on this. And even like the FDA's guidance document on design controls and, you know, even going outside the U S to, to 13485, it does a little bit better job, but I believe the expectation is that design controls apply to both your product and your manufacturing processes, but it's, it's, it's vague and, and uh, it's a misunderstood thing for a lot of folks because to your point Majority of the folks uh, out there are involved with class one and class two. And really nothing about a 510K has is asking about anything to do with your manufacturing process. Okay, now you might provide some label specifications and, and directions for use, and you might have some drawings, but you're not providing all the details of your manufacturing process. And I think that might be exacerbating or perpetuating the confusion here. I agree with you, John, and I like what you said about the product versus the the process when it comes to design controls. I would actually take it a step further. The design controls say that we need to validate the the product and to validate the process, but the the design controls do not say that we need to put those two things together and validate them. Yeah, exactly. And and that, I think, is one of the many significant limitations controls because as even in the class two or lower universe, our devices become more complex, our technologies become more complex, the processes that we use to make these devices become more complex. I think it's a gross oversimplification to separate the device itself, the product yes. from the process that's used to, to 100%. 100%. To make. I, just don't, I mean, I wish that it would not take a PhD in biomedical engineering to- <laughs> We appreciate that, but uh, well, but, anyway. but, I, but I think that problem is going to to continue, uh, unfortunately, um, because so many companies are are getting leaner and meaner. Like you know, the the brick and mortar company that has you know that has all functions and operations within the same building, let alone within the same company, uh, is a bit of a dinosaur uh, these days. It's it's a rare bird, you know, because so many, especially smaller companies, you know, they're like. There's no, it doesn't, it's not pragmatic for us to bring in this manufacturing expertise in in house. So let's partner with a contract manufacturer or whatever it may be. And that just, that makes the gap wider, the chasm bigger rather than smaller. Absolutely. And in those scenarios, I've seen it happen where people validate the product and that's perfectly fine. They validate the process and that's perfectly put them together and it's not fine anymore. They're skewed lines. <laughs> they never intersect, but they're not going in the same direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. The the last thing to just talk a little bit about, and then I think we can start to wrap this up, John, is sure. what about the overall quality management system? Is the quality management system or the QMS that about demonstrating compliance to, to regulation? In other words, <laughs> should the emphasis there be to simply make sure that our QMS ticks all the boxes that are required? Is that uh, the approach that we should be taking, John? And again, well, I'm guessing I know your answer to this. Yeah. Let's hear I mean, it directly from you. Yeah. The um, Well, the short answer is no. That's not what I'm trying to do with the quality management system. Um, what I'm trying to do is to describe how I do business and how we're measuring you know, certain KPIs or objectives or criteria, how we're demonstrating quality, you know, both at the product level and at the process level. And you know, make sure that we've defined roles, responsibilities, processes that are applicable and appropriate to our business, so that you know we can not only produce quality products, but but we can do so with consistency, right? And that's really the the essence of what a quality system is intended to do. But here again, so many have been held on the compliance and. You know, it's uh, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg, and I, I don't know that we'll get into the the nuances of that today. But nonetheless, we have, as an industry, been conditioned to uh, make our quality system check the compliance boxes. We don't implement quality systems to help us run better businesses, and, I, and that's just a big mistake. I couldn't agree more, John. It's a it's a huge mistake. The way I like to describe the the quality management system, uh, it, it, it's not ticking those boxes, as as you said. It's a philosophy of doing business. Yes, that's the really the way that I liked it. And you know, here's what I would add. Just what 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 you said, and this I think could be a topic of a whole different discussion. Um, as you and I think some of your audience knows, I spend some of my time working as an expert witness in medical device product liability cases, and. When an attorney talks to me about a product liability case, one of the first things I ask to dig into is their quality management system, uh-huh. because it's very easy for me, even though the company's QMS probably ticks all the FDA boxes. Right. It's very easy from QMS against them. It's yes, just, absolutely. It's, it, so anyway, that's a topic, as I said, probably of a different discussion. But I know we're we need to wrap this up, John. So any last thoughts that you want to offer under this general topic of quality and improving quality and uh, yeah. other things that we should add to our, our quality uh, thinking? Actually, I, I think for now, I think that's probably a good place to park this. Um, I mean, I you continue to be excited to see how quote quality evolves. Uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that some of the the pitfalls and the the obstacles and the, and the drawbacks that we spoke about today, I'm, I'm optimistic that that um, we're turning a corner as an industry. Um, again, I, I, I have been accused of being a silver lining guy plenty of times in the past, and I'm okay with that, um, <laughs> especially if the outcome means that we're going to make safer, more effective medical devices at the end. So, you know, I hope folks listening realize that, you know, we have to, you know, interrupt the pattern. And, and right now around the topic of quality, um, there's a pattern and it's not a, it's not a good pattern, but I think it could be corrected with you know, philosophy, maybe a little bit more applying this more on the front end as uh, making this a part of my culture. So, um, you know, I know that's one of the things that we've, we've tried to do with Greenlight. We've tried to enable um, or trying to make your quality system more of an enabler instead of an obstacle. Or so. to perhaps end, you know, from my perspective, John, to end with a very common quality buzz phrase, 
and that is continuous improvement. Continuous improvement. Continuous improvement should not be limited to just our products, our devices, but our processes. Absolutely. Indeed, our thinking. So regardless of how well we think we're doing as a company or as an industry, I think we can always do better. Absolutely. I like that. So anyway, thanks for this. This was uh... a silver lining, John. I'm okay with it. I, I mean, I don't. I don't need to label it. It's just. It's the right. It's the right mentality. Continuous improvement. How do we get better? Because there's practice a, what we preach. Yeah. Practice what we preach. Absolutely. Practice what we preach. Absolutely. So again, thank you, and uh, I enjoy these uh, role reversal conversations that we have from time to time. So um, the good news is, I didn't feel like I was in the hot seat too much. So. I hope I did a reasonable or was a reasonable facsimile of you know filling your, your shoes because they're big shoes to fill. I felt the I felt the quality was there, Mike. I felt the Good. quality was there. Thank so you. all right. Thank you. Well, folks, thank you so much to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Uh, obviously, he's a, a, a regulatory a guru expert and nerd. So uh, for those of you out there who uh, you know maybe you're just trying to figure out how and what and and when to to address different regulatory facets, you know, whether that be pre-submissions or 510Ks or, or, or de novos, Mike can help you build that strategy that makes the most sense for your company and for your product. So reach out to him. He's loves this. He, he drinks regulatory for breakfast, I think. So, uh, <laughs> but, you know, I appreciate all of you listening. Yeah, he's got it in his mug right now. I appreciate all you listening. It's because of you that the Global Medical Device Podcast remains the number one podcast in the medical device industry. And you know, I know from time to time, some of you reach out to me or Mike, and I'm always humbled and, and uh, grateful when, when you reach out and share that, you know, that you've found a particular thing that we talked about inspiring or insightful or whatever the case may be. But thank you for listening in all sincerity. And lastly, as, as we wrap things up today, you know, on the, the topic of quality and, and true quality and incorporating this as part of your business philosophy and your culture, you know, that's what we do at Greenlight Guru. We've built the only medical device success platform in the medical device industry designed only for medical device companies by actual medical device professionals themselves. So, you know, we've, we've got workflows to help you. Yeah. You know, okay. I told you compliance isn't isn't the the the, the goal, but it is an, an outcome. And some of those things that we built into the workflow of within Greenlight, they're going to help you achieve that, and 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 even more so than that. So check it out www.greenlight.guru. We'd love to learn more about your quality management system needs and requirements, and see if we have products and solutions that can address that. So. Till next time, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.